Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Alice Gallaudet-Marais. Welcome, everybody, to Chess Journal Podcast. I am Alice Gallo, an intensivist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and one of the Chess Journal's one of the Chess Journal social media editors. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Gil Emer, and we're going to talk about his paper on observation, aspiration, or tube thoracostomy for primary spontaneous pneumothorax a systematic review, meta-analysis, and cost-utility analysis. Dr. Imer, I'm so excited to talk to you today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? So I'm Gil Emer. I'm a pediatric general surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada. And uh, I've been in practice now for two years. And this project actually started when I was a fellow at McMaster Children's Hospital, uh, which is just outside of Toronto uh, in Ontario, Canada. Um, I have a, an interest in health economics and uh, health outcomes. And I saw an opportunity um, when I was a fellow to examine this because it's something that crosses over from, from the pediatric world to the adult world. Uh, in terms of its distribution. And there were some new studies that had come out uh, that seemed to question whether or not the guidelines were uh, appropriate for everybody. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to put my training into practice. Oh, I love that. And that uh, ties up with my next question that I had for you. Just for our listeners to know a little bit about you, about the author, uh, just tell us about a typical work day or week for you and how your day-to-day practice uh, inspired you to do this work. You already touched a little bit on it, but tell us a little bit more. So now that I'm I'm uh, working at uh, CHEO, uh, the day-to-day kind of ch- it changes every week. Um, I work with four amazing general surgeons who are my colleagues. And so we kind of split clinic and operating time, but we've got some protected time for research as well. So every week's a little bit different. Um, we're also fortunate enough to have a couple amazing fellows that we uh, work with and, and who uh, we're in the process of training at all times. Um, and we see our fair share of uh, thoracic surgical disease, including spontaneous pneumothorax. Um, but we, we have a pretty diverse mix, including you know colorectal and oncology and, um, and trauma and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's a pretty diverse uh, practice right now. When I started this study, I was doing my fellowship in pediatric surgery at McMaster Children's Hospital. And uh, that was a very busy time of life. But I saw a reasonable volume of spontaneous pneumothorax. And the question was always raised, uh, how should we be managing this? The BTS guidelines say uh, you should aspirate and then can discharge. But the challenge for us was uh, the travel time that some people had to come see us. Should they be discharged? Should they be admitted? Um, Was aspiration the right uh, treatment for somebody who had a small pneumothorax? And then uh, in the winter of 2020, 
uh, Dr. Brown from Australia published his study looking at observation, and that really called into question what we should be doing. And uh, with that uh, new paper kind of suggesting maybe there is a less invasive modality, um, we started to ask the question, well, what does the literature say? And uh, with my training, uh, what is the cost of each of these different strategies? Because they all have their, their ups and downs. And uh, so we started looking into that and it hadn't been reported yet. Uh, and so that's how we kind of came to, to come to, with that question. And um, it's, it was, it was challenging doing, during fellowship, but it was also really uh, invigorating. So I'm glad to be behind fellowship, have some more time to focus on research and also my family, but, uh, it's been, it's been enlightening for how to do this, these, this important research work. I, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. It is very, very important work. And uh, when I was reading your paper, I was very uh, fascinated about the fact that you chose to look also into cost because it's a very important topic. But I feel like sometimes in medicine, we don't talk openly about cost. And I feel like sometimes on the day to day, we don't pause to think about like, okay, is this procedure that I'm offering going to be the most cost effective and the most clinical, uh, the most clinically applicable. So um, share with us a little bit about why you chose to look into cost um, in and how is the um, how is the cost? Um, how does the cost affect the care for your patients um, in the health system where you practice? So in the Canadian context, it's a public payer healthcare system with a, essentially it's a single insurance provider, which is the government. And so the patients themselves don't see the cost of the care that they get. All they see is the outcomes. Um, and as physicians, we need to be careful stewards of those resources so that we can treat as many patients as possible. Absolutely. And the resources can be length of stay, hospital admission, but it, it can also be the cost of devices that we use, operating room time, um, all those sorts of things. So what we should be striving for is the best possible patient outcome. But if there's multiple ways that you can do um, patient care, and for, in this example, there's, there's several ways that you can manage a spontaneous pneumothorax. The question arises, first off, is clinically, which is the quote-unquote best one, uh, the one with the best outcomes. But the other side of it is, what's the most costly one? So um, we commonly see that with cancer therapies where there's a new drug that comes out, but it's you know a million dollars for treatment or $500,000 for treatment. And the question arises, does the added benefit of, of that intervention um, pay dividends for the patient, but also for the system? Yeah. Um, and in, in other healthcare systems where resources may be even more limited, then costs can be even more important. Whereas in other systems where it's the health insurance, private health insurance, um, it may be that the outcomes are more important. And that's a, a difficult balance to try to figure out. And I think costing and utility analysis is a way of providing information that people can translate into their own context. Thank you so much. And um, walk us through the methods you and your team use to find the studies you included. 
So the first thing we did is we sat down with a research librarian and uh, and asked her to uh, help devise a search strategy that would be complete, uh, would capture everything. And so with uh, our research librarian at McMaster uh, University, uh, we searched Medline and Embase um, and did a very broad search to identify as many articles as we could, uh, including abstracts from the last roughly 20 years, and then uh, downloaded it into uh, online software and then had two uh, independent researchers go through every title, screen all of them, um, identify any possible ones, and then do a more detailed analysis of the abstracts and eventually the full text to uh, narrow it down. And in the, e in the end, we actually identified a little over 5,000 separate yeah. articles uh, after removing uh, duplicates and then uh, eventually narrowed it down to 22 articles that met all of our inclusion and exclusion criteria. That's amazing. I, I confess that when I was reading your paper for the first time, I'm like, are there even 5,000 thousand articles talking about spontaneous pneumothorax? So that was a that was a big surprise for me, at least. Well, one, one of the downsides of a very inclusive search strategy is you yeah. do end up getting a lot of ones that aren't related at all. They just happen to use the word pneumothorax or happen to use the word chest tube. Um, so <laughs> that makes sense. And for our listeners, that's figure one on the paper. So tell us about your results. What did your team find? And tell me if you were surprised at all about your findings. So what we wanted to do was to compare three common strategies. So we wanted the, the classic strategy of a tube thoracostomy or a large bore chest tube, which is still used uh, relatively commonly in some centers, especially uh, smaller centers. Uh, and uh, with aspiration, which is the current recommendation provided by the British Thoracic Society, and the newer strategy of, of observation. And we wanted to compare all three of those arms together. So we uh, pulled all the data that we could and then compared two, uh, chest tube versus aspiration, chest tube versus observation, and aspiration versus observation. What we found when we looked at chest tube versus aspiration was that the length of uh, stay um, was uh, slightly different uh, for chest tube versus aspiration. Aspiration, uh, they went home a couple days faster. Um, and that there was a trend towards favoring aspiration, but with very high heterogeneity between the randomized control trials and the uh, retrospective trials. And once you excluded the retrospective trials, there was very little, uh, there's no statistically significant difference uh, towards uh, one or the other, though there was a trend favoring aspiration. Mm -hmm. We also found uh, a very small number of studies that actually reported some of our secondary outcomes, uh, which included uh, resolution of a pneumothorax if it recurred, uh, and whether there was um, a co their complication rates. Uh, in that in the studies that did report complication rates, there was a trend towards favoring aspiration, which makes sense if it's a less invasive procedure, complications uh, could be lower. Yeah, yeah. None of that was too much of a surprise, um, other than the fact that there was this trend towards favoring aspiration with recurrence, which uh, would kind of go against conventional wisdom that putting a tube in until it stops leaking, you should have a lower recurrence rate. That to me was the surprise. So I was hoping you could touch more a little bit on that because I was like, huh. That's yeah, what I it, thought. It, it did surprise me. 
Um, and I do note that it's a trend. It's not statistically significant. Yeah. So we'd have to see if it, if it uh, holds true if, if further studies are done comparing chest tube and aspiration. Yeah. I was very surprised. So I'm glad yeah. we talked about it. The other... The next group that we looked at was chest tube versus observation. Uh, so yeah. this is the the classic treatment versus the uh, the latest uh, suggestion. And um, this one here, there was ten studies that we identified. All but one of the studies were retrospective cohort studies, and one was a prospective cohort study. So there, it is a little bit limited in terms of some of the data that we have in terms of the quality. Yeah. Uh, but overall, um, both. Both studies found a shorter length of hospital stay in the observation arm, which makes sense. If you don't stick a needle in a chest and you just send them home with observation, then uh, they're in the hospital less time. Yeah. Um, and we found no difference in terms of recurrence rate if the uh, uh, when the initial treatment was successful. Um, but we don't know in terms of recurrence after initial treatment success uh, because only once uh, there wasn't enough data to draw a conclusion about that. There was, uh, not surprisingly, lower complication rates in the observation group versus the uh, chest tube placement. And part of that, I think, is important to note that the studies doing observation had very careful inclusion criteria to reduce the risk of the observation arm. Yeah. And so it's not just a willy-nilly, everybody can get observed. You have to select the patients carefully. And with that, the complication rate is lower. And then the final group we looked at was aspiration versus observation. Mm -hmm. In this, we identified nine studies, of which two were prospective trials. And um, we looked at length of stay, of which only one study uh, looked at it, but it did uh, did find a shorter length of stay uh, with the observation group. And this was a high-quality randomized controlled trial that, that looked at that. In terms of success rate of uh, observation versus aspiration, um, all the studies found higher rates of resolution with aspiration, but there was high heterogeneity. And so we didn't pool the studies uh, any further beyond that. And there was one outlier. Um, and when we removed that, the heterogeneity fell significantly. And so we pooled those four studies and aspiration um, had a higher rate of resolution uh, when compared to observation, which kind of makes sense. If you suck the air out, um, then there's a better chance for uh, scarring to occur to seal the area off, which is the way we think um, some of these pre are prevented from coming back. Um, but uh, overall, um, the uh, one prospective randomized trial showed a lower complication rate in the observation arm, despite the higher recurrence rate, which was interesting uh, for me. Very interesting. And again, good, good conversation uh, point with our patients, right? Uh, mm -hmm. when deciding when deciding what to recommend. And speaking of recommendations, is your practice changed in any way since you since you had your um, data and since you published this paper? So my practice is a little bit, it, yes, it has changed, but not for everybody. Okay. So uh, at CHEO, uh, we're our catchment area because we're the ref the tertiary referral center for children for a very large area. Uh -huh. um, uh, many of our patients, if they're coming down with a pneumothorax, have to come by air. And uh, so they're automatically excluded. They're, some of our patients come from four or 5,000 kilometers north of us. 
Wow. Um, they're not candidates for observation. They need yep. some sort of tube to decompress to allow safe air travel. But for my local patients who are um, relatively asymptomatic or asymptomatic and who meet the criteria from um, Dr. Brown's study, I will offer them observation if they are uh, able to get back to my center easily and quickly should symptoms worsen. Um, for those that don't, I will uh, do a trial of aspiration by putting in a small bore pigtail in the emergency department, aspirating, and then waiting a few hours uh, to follow the BTS guidelines and then removing the tube if there is no recurrence. If there's a failure, then I, I put them on suction and I admit them. And that, that has changed since I did the study. I used to be much more uh, admit and put on suction, okay. wait 48 hours. That's awesome. And if you if you could give guidelines to our listeners, so what would you what would you tell them to do? What would you suggest? So I would suggest considering observation in patients who are reliable, who are able to uh, return to the emergency department easily, and uh, who meet the criteria uh, set out in uh, Dr. Brown's paper in terms of who qualifies. Um, and, but discuss it with the patient because if you're not following guidelines, you need to tell them, yeah. here are the options and here's the pros and cons of each option. There may be a slightly higher recurrence rate or, or failure of uh, the initial management. Yeah. Um, and but the benefit is that there may be a lower complication rate if we have observed this. If it's somebody who can't reliably get back or has to travel quite a distance to get you, they need a, they need a, a minimum of aspiration. And if they're traveling, they need a, a tube to stay in while they travel. So more air can be evacuated if needed. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And um, if I was going to ask for couple of parting pearls for our listeners, what would you tell them, like your, your take-home message? So the big thing for me from this is the, the cost utility modeling. So when I did, uh, when I did the, the analysis, I got all the data and then I actually plugged it into a model uh, to check the economics of the three options, comparing it to utility. So utility is the patient-perceived uh, health state. So the higher your health state or the better health you're in, the higher utility you have. And actually, uh, and I used uh, published literature looking at the utility of pneumothoraxes. So mm -hmm. with a pneumothorax, you have a, a lower health state. And uh, using that, the observation arm actually had the best health state and the lowest cost treatment. So it's not just that um, there's less interventions and it's cheaper, but according to the model, they actually had a better health state compared to the other two treatment options. So it's not just an experimental thing that uh, reduced costs. It may actually be improving the patient's um, health status by doing observation. Um, and so it's, it's um, there may be even more to it than just um, the clinical side. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I have talked to Dr. Gil Emer today about his paper, Observation, Aspiration, or Tube Thoracostomy for Primary Spontaneous Pneumothorax, a Systematic Review, Meta-Analysis, and Cost-Utility Analysis on, that will be out on this month's uh, CHEST journal. Dr. Emer, thank you so much for joining me today. On behalf of the CHEST journal, I 
Sincerely appreciate your expertise and you dedicating your time to talk to us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.